Thank you. Thank you for the welcome and uh, welcome to this series on well-being that we're so enjoying together. I hope you're enjoying the devotionals as well as the message and feeling that you are not running on empty. That's the headline for this series, right? Don't live on empty. As I saw that headline, I was reminded of the time when I set out from Peterborough to drive to Cambridge uh, to preach at the Friday evening service. And uh, I was running on empty, but I was, t- I was too busy to stop to fill up. Um, so I carried on and then conked out on the hard shoulder of the parkway just outside, just on Peterborough. And uh, I remember the, the place I'd run out of fuel was actually a dangerous spot just by the slipway. So uh, as I called the RAC, the police arrived and um, the policeman said, this is too dangerous. I need to take you with your can to fill up with fuel so we can get you moving on. And it just so happened that as I was climbing into the police car, a member of Kingsgate, who will remain nameless, was driving past and saw the Kingsgate teaching pastor getting into a police car on the hard shoulder and uh, generously texted my wife. So I not only ran out of petrol, but got a text from Charlotte saying, why have you just been arrested by the police? It's not good to run on empty, right? All sorts of negative consequences can follow. And this series then is about, in a holistic sense, helping us, if you like, live in the healthy zone, not just spiritually, but physically and relationally and emotionally, and today in our vocational well-being. So the focus today is on vocational well-being. Vocation, vocare, is a Latin word meaning calling. So it's the idea that we are in this world not by accident, We are here on purpose and for purpose. Amen? We're here on purpose and for purpose. We have a calling, a reason why we exist. And when we discover that calling, and that can be expressed in, in, manifest in several ways in, in the lifetime of an individual. It might be a calling to get married and then a calling to have, be a parent. But it might also be a calling to uh, be a, run, a, run a business or start a business or uh, to volunteer in a charity. These manifestations of our vocation can be various. But here's the thing. When we discover why we are here, our vocation, we flourish in the world. And uh, there's a lovely uh, phrase by an ancient uh, Christian leader called Irenaeus in the second century. And he put it this way. The glory of God is the human person fully alive in their calling. Isn't that a beautiful statement right there? God is pleased. There's a joy in God when a human being, a human person, is fully alive in their calling. That really is the headline of this message. How can we, to the glory of God, be human beings fully alive in our calling? And that's the headline, and that's the challenge, because we live in a culture that is stressed out, right? And the stress is particularly focused on the workplace. If you read the statistics, they're pretty depressing that around half a million people are currently off work with stress. 40% of people interviewed in the workplace say that they're stressed in their job and it's costing the economy not billions but trillions of pounds because we're struggling with how to have a vocation, a sense of calling, but to have that vocation with well-being. Does this resonate at all? And it may be that you're in that place where life is tough and in particular work or what you're doing in the world feels confusing and frustrating and even stressed right now. I think part of the challenge, and I'm not being simplistic here, but part of the challenge is we live in a culture that is increasingly wandering away from the wisdom of God's word. 
And when we depart from the wisdom of God's word, we wander into trouble. Here's an amazing verse. Think of this well-being series and this verse in Isaiah 48. The prophet says this, If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river and your well-being like the waves of the sea. So in this message, I want to return to the principles of God's word that help us have well-being in our vocation. And we're focusing that on the story of Elijah, which appears in 1 Kings. You can read it in your own time. I'm sure you've been on that journey in the devotionals daily. And in this moment, we're looking at three episodes, or I want to actually call them cameo appearances. Are you familiar with the idea of a cameo appearance in a film? You've got the main actor, which for us is Elijah, but sometimes you have this interjection of cameo appearances by other small actors who play an important role. I mean, if you're a film buff, think of um, David Bowie in Zoolander, think of Kate Blanchett in Hot Fuzz, or think of Her Majesty the Queen at the opening of the Olympic Games. Do you remember that cameo appearance? Well, in the story of Elijah, there are three cameo appearances that I want to highlight this morning, and each of them has a principle for our vocational well-being, so that we don't run out of fuel in our work in the world. The first is a cameo appearance where we're going to discover your calling, then defend your well-being, and finally develop the next generation. The first, then, is a cameo appearance by a man called Obadiah. And you may not be familiar with Obadiah. You may not be familiar with Elijah. Don't panic. I'm going to introduce this to us. But here's the headline for this point. Elijah and Obadiah discover your vocation. Discover your calling. You see, one of the most detrimental things to our vocational well-being is when we're not comfortable with what God's called us to do in the world. And so we start find ourselves comparing with others and wishing we were someone else or wishing we were doing something else and we lose the motivation and the opportunity of what God's called us to be. Does that resonate with anyone? Isn't comparison deadly? If we want vocational well-being, we've got to discover our calling and get comfortable with what God's called us to do. Well, we see this by comparing Elijah and Obadiah. In the story, if you are familiar with it, Elijah is this prophet of the Lord. He's this bold public figure who hits the headlines and speaks God's truth and he's employed, if you like, for that vocation. So he's, if you like, the full-time Christian worker, if we want to use those terms. But at the time that Elijah's operating, the king Ahab is a really evil king. And he is actually sacking and even killing the Lord's prophets. And so onto the stage, we have this cameo appearance by a man called Obadiah. And we read his entrance to the story in 1 Kings 18. Notice the difference here. Elijah and Obadiah, you could not get more contrasting people with more different callings. Obadiah is never going to be an Elijah. He's never going to preach a sermon. He's never going to raise a dead person. He's never going to go to theological college and enter. That's not his calling, right? But listen to the difference this man made in what God had called him to do. We read this in 1 Kings 18. Now the famine was severe in Samaria and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Now notice the narrator opens some brackets here. There's always stuff in brackets. Listen to the brackets. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. And while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, 
Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. Close brackets. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, Elijah replied. Go tell your master that Elijah is here. What I love about Obadiah is this. On the outward appearance, he is completely compromised in a hostile environment in the world of work, if you like. He is the COO, the chief operating officer for King Ahab, right? He seems to be totally in bed with the enemy, a big part of the problem. But did you notice the narrator opens the brackets? Did you see that? And he says, but what you need to know, before you judge Obadiah, you need to realize this man greatly feared the Lord just as much as Elijah ever did. So they have completely contrasting callings. Elijah is outside of the system. Obadiah is working within the system. But both of them greatly fear the Lord and both of them have a huge contribution to make. And I want this to be an encouragement to those of us especially who, like Obadiah, are actually called into the hostile, messy, tense environment where you're not working with people who are Christians. And it's not a nice Christian environment in your role. And you wonder sometimes, can I make any kind of a difference here? Think about Obadiah, right? He was the chief operating officer for the worst king in Israel's history. But he made an extraordinary difference. Elijah is one prophet. Obadiah saved a hundred prophets through his actions in the world. Is that encouraging? Isn't it a reminder? There's always stuff in brackets. Be very careful to judge people when you don't actually know what they're really doing for the Lord. It's so easy on outward appearances to reach quick conclusions that don't appreciate the tension and the struggle and the complexity of the world of work in which we're seeking to serve the Lord. As I think of this, I, um, I, I think, as I think of Elijah and Obadiah, I think of a more recent modern day equivalent. I always was a fan of a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a huge hero of mine, and he remains so. If you know anything about the Second World War, Bonhoeffer opposed the Nazis and he Uh, was executed for it, actually, later in his life. And he was like an Elijah figure. He stepped out of the system and opposed it from the outside. He's still a hero of mine, but I remember putting an unwise Facebook post after reading a book called Operation Mincemeat, which if you need a Christmas present, I think I've just sorted it for you right there. Brilliant book called Operation Mincemeat. And after reading this book, I rather unwisely put a Facebook post that my new hero was a Nazi intelligence officer. Let me explain. Here on the screen you can see Colonel Baron von Rohn, who in that uniform seems to be utterly evil. He was a man who reported to Hitler and assessed the credibility of intelligence and gave Hitler wisdom as to decisions he should make. But he was also a Christian. And he was actually operating, if you like, as an undercover agent for the Lord. And whereas Bonhoeffer stepped out of the system and opposed it from outside, this man risked his life on the inside, like a modern-day Obadiah. When the Allied forces dropped a deception plan, this man wrote it up to Hitler and got Hitler to believe it. He got Hitler to believe that the invasion was actually going to come to Sicily, not Normandy, and Hitler moved significant troops away from where the Allies actually attacked, saving potentially thousands of lives because this man from the inside was working for the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that extraordinary? He never reported to the British. He was not one of the Allies' undercover agents. They didn't even know that he was there, but he 
he simply believed that he could make a difference by staying in in Jesus' name. Well, eventually Hitler realized what this man had done and he had him arrested and on October the 11th, 1944, his hands were tied behind his back and he was hung from a meat hook by his neck until he died. And the night before he died, he wrote to his wife a letter that simply said this, in a moment, I shall be going home to our Lord in complete calm and in the certainty of salvation. And that's why a Nazi intelligence officer is one of my heroes, because you never know the stuff in brackets, right? You never know what's going on behind the scenes and the complexity with which some people in the most extraordinary challenging environments are still greatly fearing the Lord and seeking to make the best difference that they can. So we need to honour each other's vocations because we don't know the stuff in brackets, right? Elijah, the full-time Christian leader, needs Obadiah and Obadiah needs Elijah. And they've got to work together and pray for each other and support each other because they don't know the stuff in brackets. And sometimes we can find ourselves too quickly judging each other. Sometimes you can look and think, I think being a church leader would be an absolute doddle. Don't you think they only work on Sundays? Isn't that right? They don't know what a proper job is. Listen, you have no idea of the stuff in brackets for that particular vocation, right? But those of us who work in the church environment have to remember, but we don't know the stuff in brackets for those who work in seemingly less spiritual roles, but they're still making an extraordinary difference for Jesus in very pressured and sometimes hostile environments. Amen? I remember having a dinner recently actually with a lawyer and I didn't know the guy and as soon as I heard he was a lawyer I'd kind of already slightly judged him you know as being someone who was probably quite greedy and self-centered and looking to make a lot of money out of his profession that's just my problem right my stuff I, when I had dinner with the lawyer I realized actually this was a man who was deliberately taking cases from those who were asylum seekers many of whom were Christians fleeing persecuted environments and he was deliberately turning down lucrative cases to take cases for people who had their whole families at stake and who were desperately needing protection and I realized after that dinner I might preach up a good sermon but he's saving the destiny of families in that vocation that God's called him to We need Elijah's and we need Obadiah's. We need Bonhoeffer's and Colonel Alexis Baron von Roan. We need you and me to make the difference that God's called us in the world. We need ourselves to get comfortable with what God's called us to be. Discover your vocation. If you are an Obadiah, quit trying to be an Elijah. It's not going to work for you and you're not going to work for the kingdom of God. Get comfortable with what God's called you to do in the world comparisons are a tyranny they rob us of our energy and our motivation and to see the opportunities that lie in front of us stop trying to be someone else get comfortable with the vocation that God's put in front of you and ask one simple question that's the same question whether you're an Elijah or an Obadiah how can I use the gifts and resources that God has given me to glorify Jesus Christ in the world That's the only question that matters, and that's how we make a difference. Amen. Well, the first point then is the cameo between Elijah and Obadiah, discover your calling. Second cameo is between Elijah and Jezebel, defend your well-being. Discover your calling and then defend your well-being. Because whatever your vocation, and however successful you may become at it, Elijah had had great success on Mount Carmel, as you probably have already read about in 1 Kings 18. But however, however much we discover our vocation, and however successful we become at it, there's always a Jezebel. <laughs> have you noticed this? 
I'm not actually talking here about a particular person, so don't try and work out who that, who that woman is, right, in your life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this always, let's think of Jezebel now, less as a particular person and more as a metaphor for the, the forces of evil and disruption at work in the world. So whatever your vocation and however successful you may be at it, there will always be a Jezebel. There's always something that's going to frustrate and stress you out in the very thing that God's called you to do. And this is what we find in the story of Elijah. Despite great success, Jezebel became his nemesis, his kryptonite. (laughs) He defeated hundreds on Mount Carmel, but one message from this woman, and it completely spins him out into a breakdown. We read this in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat, the gods will get you for this and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. So Elijah ran for dear life. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade. Enough of this God, take my life. There's always a Jezebel, right? Whatever your vocation, however successful you may be, there will always be some influence or person or situation that has the potential. Think as I say now, as this image sort of suggests, think less of a particular person and more of Jezebel as a metaphor for the things that oppose our success for the Lord in our work. We are not unopposed in what we're doing in the world. I remember when I used to play uh, rugby, sometimes on a Friday, our team would have an unopposed run-through where we would practice the moves we were going to use in the match on Saturday, but there was no opposition. It's amazing how good you can be at rugby when there's no opposition. (laughs) But on Saturday, those moves often didn't seem to work because when you've got 15 other people trying to clatter into you, it rather affects your (laughs) well-being. We are not playing unopposed rugby. <laughs> We're not, our vocation is not an unopposed match. There is always that which seeks to clatter into us and disrupt our well-being in, the, in our work. And I don't know what that might be for you right now. It might be that it's domestic situation, things going on in your family and home life that's so difficult it almost makes it impossible to do a good job at work. Or it might be that there's situations at work. It may be there's a boss who just seems to squeeze you out of shape and leave you feeling used. It may be that there's a a set of targets where you feel like you've been set targets and diminishing resources and the gap between them is just stress for you. How am I going to deliver this? Or it may be a colleague at work who just seems deliberately to undermine you and slightly sabotage your work to get one over on you. Or, or it might be that there's economic circumstances that mean that your business is threatened or your role has redundancy hanging over it with anxiety and you think, how can I do a good job when it feels so opposed? Well, this is life in the real world. And there can be particular seasons, as Elijah discovered, where Jezebel comes with a message that's deliberately an attempt to disrupt our vocational well-being. Now, here's the point. How do we then manage our lives in the world so that Jezebel doesn't get the better of us? Well, the answer to that is this entire series. (laughs) It's not one thing, right? It includes physical well-being, being healthy physically, emotional well-being, relational, spiritual well-being. It includes all those things. So the the series is gathered up in our response to Jezebel. We have to get all those things lined up. But in particular, uh, under this heading of vocational well-being, I want to highlight a couple of things. One is we need to put in place the practices that build in the resources and the resilience for the Jezebel resistance. 
One of those, I think, is the Sabbath principle, for example. The Sabbath principle says you've got to switch off from your work if you're going to long-term be any good at it. <laughs> if, you, if you keep on it all the time and never switch off from it, you'll not be any good for it, and it won't be good for you. And I think this partly is seen in Elijah. He'd had an extraordinary week of work up on Mount Carmel. I mean, even just the physical demands on the man. I was in Israel last week, actually. Mount Carmel is a big old mountain. And they were in drought season. It's pretty hot over there right now. But if you're in the roasting heat and you're not drinking very much and because there's a, there's a drought and you're climbing this mountain and then you're in prayer and then you're running back to Samaria. I mean, this is an exhausting week for anyone. And what he needed... Instead of, if you like, opening the email from Jezebel <laughs> whilst exhausted, how many times is it a small message that combines with our state of exhaustion to produce a disproportionate reaction? Have you had this? It's like a match that starts the forest fire, right? And if we just dealt with the principles that brought our health, we could have handled the message that wasn't going our way. But in Elijah's case, the match caused the forest fire because he was in a state of exhaustion. That's Sabbath principle then. The Sabbath principle of switching off just delivers us from the tyranny of being machines and allows us to be human beings that recenter our lives on God. And then we have the resources and the resilience for the stress points that will face us on Monday morning or whatever it may be. I think of William Wilberforce who faced enormous stress in his role as a politician and spearheading the abolitionist movement, but he insisted, however demanding and however significant the work, he insisted that his household would have Sabbath rest, where there would be no talk of politics. They'd spend much time in the scriptures and in worship, and they would revive their souls and recenter their lives on the Lord, and then they could do a decent week's work for the long haul. And he um, famously said, he said, of other MPs who had burnout and breakdown at the time, he said, perhaps if they had observed Sabbath, their strings would not have snapped. I like that phrase. Too often the strings in our bow snap because the tension has been growing and we haven't had the switch off of Sabbath to just retreat from the work and say, Lord, I recenter my life on you. If I'm going to be any good for my role in the, work, in the world, I need to start from a, a place of rest. Amen? We need to work from rest with the resources that gives. And as we recenter our lives on the Lord, we can then not only have the Sabbath principle, but that gives us, if you like, the stamina principle that we don't quit even when life is tough. Some of you may be in, if you like, a, a Jezebel kind of season right now where it feels like you are pressed up against challenge and threat and anxiety and stress. And the challenge partly for us is just to not quit. I mean, actually, sometimes success for the Lord means that you stand. And after you've done everything, you're still standing. Amen? You may not be... Flying with great success in your work right now, but if you will stand and in the storm you will not give in, if you will draw your, your stamina from the scriptures and if you will allow the, the truth of God's word to renew and revive your heart, as the psalmist says, I was thinking of Psalm 27, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear, what can man do to me? If only Elijah had read that one when the message came from Jezebel, we might have a different story, right? That kind of scripture puts strength in our hearts. The psalm goes on to say, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. I will yet be confident in the Lord. 
When we sing, even in the storm, <laughs> have you learned to sing in the storm? You've got to do that sometimes in life, haven't you? You've got to raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. In the presence of Jezebel and the threat and the challenge, we read the scriptures and we sing over those, the name of Jesus. We lift up the name of Jesus and we find that if we stand, eventually the storm passes. I want to bring that as a pastoral encouragement to some of us today, watching online and some of us in the room. Stand firm in the Lord. The storm will pass. Jezebel's bark is bigger than her bite, right? It's the Wizard of Oz, folks. The big booming voice is actually a little frail old man behind the curtain. Have you seen that film? <laughs> Don't run away from the Jezebel threat. Stand firm in the Lord and he will give you the resources, not only to weather the storm, but to flourish again in your vocation. Firstly then, amen. Firstly, <laughs> discover your vocation, Elijah and Obadiah. Secondly, defend your well-being, Elijah and Jezebel. And then thirdly, Elijah and Elisha develop the next generation. Elijah did run away from Jezebel out into the wilderness, but the Lord met him there, as we probably know from the story, and the Lord restored uh, this broken man. He'd had a breakdown. He was a broken prophet. And uh, the Lord came to him. I, I imagine the Lord's uh, appearing to Elijah, almost like that moment where when you've taken a wrong turning, your sat-nav just says rerouting, right? It's like that graciousness of saying, instead of just saying, ah, oh, you've lost it now, it's like, no, I can give you fresh directions to still get you where you need to go from here. Isn't that good news? That the Lord has the capacity, the graciousness of rerouting even when we have struggles and breakdown and challenge. Well, this is what we find in terms of the fresh directions that Elijah received from the Lord. We're reading now from 1 Kings 19 further on. The Lord said to Elijah, go back the way you came and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as a prophet. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant." Notice the Lord's instructions, go back the way you came. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm still going to get you back in the game. Yes, you've screwed up. Yes, you've dropped out. But you are still my prophet. You're not sacked. God does not accept the resignation letter from Elijah. Isn't that good news? God does not accept your resignation letter either. He says, no, I can get you back in the game. Go back the way you've come. But, but... And here's the absolute key from this point. The key is this. Elijah must return the same way, but not operate the same way. Notice the difference. He must go back the same way, but not to continue living the same way. What do I mean? Well, his modus operandi up until this point had been the Lone Ranger kind of prophet. Out in front on his own, doing it all on behalf of everyone else. And the Lord effectively says, you've ended up isolated through that modus operandi. That's not the way I want you to continue to work in the world. Now it's time for you to develop the next generation. Now it's time for you to stop doing it all and start getting into development mode. And I felt like for some of us, this is an important corner that some of us need to turn. I think I'm partly turning this corner in my life cycle as well at the moment. I think we've got to sometimes turn a corner from doing mode to developing mode. 
There's actually a slightly different vision of how you understand success in the world. Success for Elijah had been measured by how much he had done. Now it's going to be measured by how many others he's developed. And that's a slightly different way of vision for your life and what success looks like. And that's the calling for Elijah. So he very intentionally, we simply read this phrase, Elijah went and found Elisha. And when he found him, he was a young man without obvious potential. He was plowing oxen and he was picking up the 12th pair of oxen. In other words, he wasn't up front leading. This guy was right at the back. He, he wouldn't have seemed like someone with huge potential. But can you imagine the moment then for Elisha when the great Elijah appears and throws his mantle over his shoulders? What, what would that do for a young man? who didn't feel like his life was ever going to amount to much, and suddenly the great prophet of the Lord says, I'm with you. You come with me. We're going to do life together now. I'm going to, the cloak symbolizes the very identity and personhood of Elijah. It's like he's saying, you're with me now. We're going to do life together. You don't need to be afraid. I'm going to, I see great potential in you. I believe in God's call on your life, and together we're going to do great things. You know, folks, there is a generation of Elishas out there who are longing to feel that cloak over the shoulders of real proximity to those who really believe in them, who aren't on a screen in the celebrity world, but are right alongside them in the real world, saying, I'm going to bring true discipleship into your life. I see great potential in you. Together, we can do great things. Can you imagine the difference that makes to a young man like Elisha? Can you imagine the difference that makes to those around us today when we intentionally turn a corner and say, success for me is going to be investing in developing others and seeing the world change as a consequence? Elisha went on to do extraordinary things. Have you read the story? I mean, how satisfying for Elijah. Instead of him doing it all, he, he raises up over 10 years now. He'll invest his life in Elisha and Elisha will then start opening schools of prophets Imagine how satisfying that would have been for Elijah to realize instead of him doing everything, there are whole schools of prophets opened up because he sunk his investment into a young man who sunk his investment into other young men and it spiraled in a, in a great cycle of transformation for the kingdom. Some of us need to get out of part of the reason we're so stressed in our vocation is because we're just in doing mode. And sometimes it's our own insecurities that have kept us from allowing others into what we're doing. We need to just have the confidence to step back and say, I want to get out of doing mode and get into developing mode and find a new vocational well-being because there's such joy found when others flourish through our investment in their lives. You can't put a price on that. Amen? So I encourage many of us to make that turn. There is a generation of Elishas waiting with tremendous potential, but they'll only be realized when they feel the cloak of someone older and wiser coming over their shoulders, some of whom maybe they haven't had a great dad or a great mum or a great upbringing. But when the cloak goes over the shoulders and says, let's do this life together, suddenly there's a release of potential to the glory of God. Amen. <clears throat> Well, you've had your three cameos, Elijah and Obadiah. Discover your calling. Stop comparing yourself to other people. That will ruin your vocational well-being. Get comfortable with what God's called you to do. Elijah and Jezebel, defend your well-being. We are not unopposed. So take your Sabbath rest seriously and return to your work with fresh energy through scripture and worship and prayer. And then finally, Elijah and Elisha, get out of doing mode and get into developing mode. There's a generation that we can raise up in Jesus' name.
But I want to finish with, we've, we've looked at Elijah, I want to finish just briefly with Elisha. Notice the response he makes. Elijah comes almost like the Messiah here, almost like Jesus to us. Elijah says, comes and says, follow me. And Elisha responds by burning his stuff, by leaving his old life and rising to follow Elijah the master. You know, our vocational well-being, our ultimate vocational well-being will be found in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, go ahead and apply these principles of wisdom, but the wisdom only works when we make Jesus the master. Amen? There is a price to be paid sometimes for this, but that price is so worth it. Can you imagine for Elisha, he burnt the oxen and the plows that were, if you like, a price that he had to pay to follow Elijah, but then he goes on this extraordinary adventure. How worth it would it have been for Elisha? How much he must have been glad that he paid the price to follow the call. I want to invite you to pay the price to follow the call of Jesus Christ. It is so worth it. A few years back, we had a knock at the door, and uh, it was the postman, and he had a letter for me, but it was one of these ones where there wasn't enough postage paid, so there was a £1.14 price to pay, right? I still remember the number, and uh, a pound was a handling fee, which seemed unusual to me, but then the 14 was the difference of postage, and I looked at the letter, I didn't recognise the handwriting, and I, I'm, I'm a bit like this, I thought, I'm not paying £1.14 for that, I don't recognise, you know, you can keep it, so the postman took the letter back. And I went back into the kitchen, looking out over our cul-de-sac where we lived. And as I saw the postman sort of going round the other houses and then slowly disappearing out of sight, I just kept thinking, I, I wonder what that was. You know, when it, you know when you sort of can't move on from the decision that you've made to turn it down? And eventually, I thought, this isn't worth it for pound fourteen. So I grabbed some money and ran off down the road and found the postman. And uh, I said, you know, I'll take it. So uh, he, I repented and he relented and uh, gave me the letter. And I <laughs> went back home and uh, in the kitchen, I opened up the letter and inside was a card from someone who knew that Charlotte and I were just on a trip to South Africa shortly. Inside the card was 5,000 South African rand. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, you're feeling what I was feeling. You sort of put, you know, you sink down, you think, I can't believe I nearly did that. <laughs> there is a price to be paid to follow Jesus Christ. It's about £1.14 compared, <laughs> compared to what is inside. And today he is knocking on the door of some of our lives and saying, as it comes to your vocation, would you consider your vocation to be follow me? And I want to encourage you, don't be someone who later in life thinks, oh, I can't believe I did that. Choose today to follow Jesus Christ, and He is the key to our vocational well being. Amen.